All right, we're back for more video game academia. And uh, this is Wesley, and I've got Ben Kozlowski here with me. How's it going, Ben? It's going all right. And uh, this time we are in Final Fantasy VI from where we left off last time, just kind of managing uh, Kefka. And and we're going to talk about some of the events up to the Returners um, rafting down the wild. Is it? What's the river called? Oh, I don't remember. It's, I feel like it's got a name. I want it to be the Lethe River, but I don't think it's quite right. Um, but yeah, so rafting along on the on the river, the Leet, the Lite River, mm. L-E-T-E. So pretty close. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so the um, the the place we left off, kind of going through the the cave to get to South Figaro. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a recovery spring there which uh, makes it a kind of um, good place to, to do a little bit of leveling up if that's something that you feel the need to do. Um, how, how have you been approaching this game this time? Do you, are you trying to um, really max things out and, and do everything possible to have an um, overpowered party? Um, or are you just kind of uh, lollygagging through it and, and getting from place to place? Um, mostly going pretty directly through. Um, I haven't spent any time at this point, at least, uh, in the grinding and leveling up. Yeah. Um, and part of that is just because, you know, the the game is itself sort of less geared to that, in my experience. Like, you can play Final Fantasy VI pretty well straight through without, you know, too much, too much trouble. Um, I do explore all the areas pretty thoroughly. Like, I want to get all the loot and the treasure chests. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I'm not like grinding for the sake of grinding, not yet anyway. Uh, But I'm also getting punished for it. (laughs) Um, I've been playing uh, with my wife watching over my shoulder and uh, we definitely got to the the octopus monster fight in the river and he one-shotted Bannon, which is the one (laughs) guy you're supposed to keep alive. Like, and he was at full health. I was like, hey, he heals the whole party up to full health every time he, he, it's his turn. And I'm like, this is going to be no problem. And then he one-shots the guy. And I'm like, well, I can't do anything about that. Yeah, that's not fair at all. That no. I feel like shouldn't happen. But it yeah, does. It, totally it does. does. It does. Uh, uh, no, yeah, yeah, this, this game does put you in a, in a spot where you can, you can kind of just go through it. Like, you know, characters join your party. They bring exceptional skills to to an already strong party and mm-hmm. sort of just a an embarrassment of riches like what way do you want to use to kill this monster <laughs> at a certain yeah point. um i mean especially at this stage like we again i was playing with sarah and we were joking about how useless Locke is at this point <laughs> like I, I try to get him to steal stuff all the time and he frequently comes up with a message that he did not successfully steal he couldn't steal and I'm just like, well, then what even? What are you even good for? Like, Edgar's here using his auto crossbow, knocking out the entire army in one hit. And Saban gets his fancy blitz, which is doing tons of damage to bosses. Terra's healing everyone, and there's Locke weighing us down. <laughs> um, but it is it is powerful. You get four people on your party, which is a pretty impressive spread by Final Fantasy standards. And especially at this stage of the game, like not many monsters really pose a threat at this point. Um, the bosses occasionally do, but your average encounter is usually a breeze. You can usually take out like half of everyone with one auto crossbow 
um, and then just pick off the stragglers one at a time. Yeah, uh, it's not exactly a, a difficult game, but like you say, there's points where it it really ratchets up the difficulty, and you, you're very likely going to get, you know, wiped out at least once, yeah. and have to go through a segment of the game again to um, to progress. And so I find it kind of interesting that, like, you know, on the one hand, it makes it fun to fight battles and, you know, see all the different ways that you can win the battles. But it also gives you these these kind of points of, of challenge to force you to try to be a little more, I don't know, a little more uh, serious, you know, yeah. and, and maybe even um, frustrate you a little bit. And I think that Ultros character is a particularly frustrating enemy because he's so annoying you know yeah he's just like a jerk <laughs> and there's yep. there's no obvious reason for him to to actually be there at all um he just sort of pops out of nowhere um he's not related to the empire in any obvious way um but he is a lot like kefka in in, in some respects because he is this kind of you know trickster character yeah, he's very anarchic in his own way. Like, and he pops up at the weirdest times. I mean, anticipating forward. I mean, it's one thing for you to encounter octopus monster while you're on the river. It's another thing for him to start dropping in during operas and things like that. It's just yeah, not not what you would expect. Um, but it is also kind of funny when you fight him uh, because, like, he makes fun of you. He taunts you as as you fight him. And I mean, depending on what abilities you use, he'll he'll like respond in different ways. So if you if you turn if you use fire, which he's weak to, um, like Terra has the fire spell at this point, and if you use fire on him, then he he shouts and he's like, ah, it's so hot, and he makes some crack about octopus soup. <laughs> um, so you know, there's something very not serious about him, even though he is kind of a threat to the party, and he somehow can one shot the one guy who you're supposed to be protecting, which doesn't <laughs> seem fair. Um, so he he is more of a nuisance than a threat, but you know, he's kind of an enjoyable nuisance, I guess. Like especially contrasted with Kefka, who is, you know funny underlying real danger ultros is apparent danger underlying real not threatening humor right. yeah he uh yeah the the opera scene is is definitely one of the iconic moments in the game so we'll have to come back to him mm -hmm. uh, when we get there um but he definitely seems to just kind of enter you know throw in this kind of uh, comic relief here um which is a little over the top actually but it proves to be really um, kind of, it, it, the game has a really broad range of emotional, like sort of um, wavelengths, I guess I'd say, you know, like there's, there's really serious moments and really kind of poignant moments. And then there's these really silly and absurd moments. Um, and you move from one to the other real quick because yeah. you know, you're, you're coming from the returners hideout where, you know, this this incredible burden has just been laid upon uh, Tara, right? Like she's mm -hmm. their only hope. She's the hope at the bottom of of Pandora's box, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, Bannon, right? He's this very serious sort of gruff um, leader of the rebellion um, type of character. And you know, he's the one guy. Like you say, you your your responsibility shifts from 
keeping your party alive to keeping this one character alive who's just a mm -hmm. temporary party member right so there's this kind of gravitas to him um but the, but it's it's powerfully undercut right when you when you're rafting along and um and fight the octopus right so yeah i don't know what, what do you think about that um as as far as a work of art you know if if the game is aspiring to be that how does it get away with cramming all these different levels in at, at the same time essentially yeah on some level i feel like it is a bit of an imperfection that it i mean all of this happens within the first two hours of the game like that's as far as much time as i've spent with it two hours yeah. and in that time we've had you know again that haunting beginning and this sort of like painful march through Narsh where Terra is like just blowing guys away left and right and then regretting it afterwards and then you've got that mystery of her interaction with the Esper and then you do have you know the sort of silly combat with the Mog or the Moogles and Locke and then you're <laughs> rushing off to meet Edgar and Figaro Castle and at the same time he's like you know Don Juan trying to seduce Terra but it, he's also got this painful backstory with his brother and then you're running away from Kefka, who just systematically destroys the whole place. Like, it all comes at you at this crazy pace. Yeah. Um, especially if you contrast it with Final Fantasy VII, which takes a lot of time in the same area and yeah. just builds tone and spends a just, it uses a lot of its effort on that first disc to acquaint you with the area and the characters and just get you in the right mindset before they send you out into the world. And Final Fantasy VI is like sprinting you across the continent from the word go. Um, but at the same time, I think part of the reason why there's so much levity mixed in with the gravitas is because it makes such a powerful contrast later in the game when the world gets broken. Mm. Um, like this is supposed to be, you know, at the same time as you're supposed to feel an urgency to your actions, that you are feeling, you know, Tara's frustration and her, her sort of, um, the, the burden that she's now carrying. At the same time that you feel this urgency with the returners, it's, it's supposed to feel like a whirlwind. Like, again, Tara is sort of the character you most identify with at this, this point in time. She's the closest thing we have to a protagonist, and she has no idea what's going on. She's swept up as easily as you are. Um, so in that sense, I think it works. Um, and in, in the other sense where it's trying to be, you know, urgent, but also lighthearted, I think it kind of fails a little bit. Like it doesn't quite, doesn't quite hit the right balance. Um, but both strains are very important. Um, and I think, you know, even if the beginning is a little bit rough and unsuccessful, a little bit rushed at the end of the, like, by the time that you meet, re reach the midpoint and everything changes enough groundwork has been set on both the the importance and the urgency and the seriousness but also the levity and the character moments and the the lightness for you to really understand what's at stake uh why why everything needs to be sort of recreated brought back to the way things were um yeah, I like that idea that you, you got to see it in the, the total picture of the game. Mm -hmm. And um, as I've mentioned, this is a game I've never actually completed. So I, I don't yet have that full picture. Okay. And, yeah. And I like the way that there's these kinds of um, pulls from the various characters. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Locke. 
a little bit of his backstory gets brought in in the returner's hideout too when when you're tara walking around talking to everybody and trying to figure out what you're supposed to do here after you've had this um kind of appeal from bannon which was maybe a little a little heavy right uh, edgar right. seems to think anyway um like we're, we're we're really moving her along too quickly um, into this conspiracy, right? She she doesn't know quite what's going on. Oh, and also the the news about her wiping out, you know, fifty of the best soldiers. Maybe not the thing to bring up right away. Uh, right. When she's like very um, sort of vulnerable and and not sure of of what her powers are and whether they're they're being used the right way, right? So, anyways, she's walking around and. Each character has something to tell her um, to try to help her sort of trust herself and trust them. And, um, and Locke mentions that he has this person that he cared about who's been, who's been essentially imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this kind of been hinted at, right, that when he first met Tara, there, there was some kind of um, re- recognition there um, right. that she reminded him of, of whoever this person was. Um, and so, yeah, as, as much as, you know, she is very much in this whirlwind mode and, and you, the player, by, by extension. These other characters have this kind of established um, purpose that just hasn't quite been brought out all the way yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we want to sort of find out what that is and how it, how it fits in with some of the, um, the mayhem that's, that's going on here. Um, it's also, I mean, again, like talking about the ways that this game succeeds and fails in its opening act, like one of the things that I've always thought that it does really well is it, it makes these characters stick in your mind. Oh, yeah. um, like each of the introductions, just the, the sort of thumbnail sketch you get of each of their backstories is incredibly memorable. Like much as I may say that Locke is absolutely useless in battle, like his story is already something that you're curious about, even this early. Um, as ridiculous as Edgar might be in his attempts to court Terra, you know, his 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 position as ruler and his relationship to his brother show a clear strain on him that, you know, is easily identifiable. And then, you know, when you in fact meet Sabin, when he shows up to help you fight Vargas, there's this really dramatic scene between the two of them where Vargas has apparently killed his own father because, you know, he chose Sabin as his successor over Vargas. And Sabin's response is, no, he chose you. Um, You killed your father for no reason. Um, But then at the same time, he reveals that he knows the secret technique that Vargas does not. Um, So, you know, there's just like, just in that much time, you get this glimpse, not a full picture, but a glimpse of this really elaborate story that you have missed entirely. Like you're only picking up the pieces after the fact, you're only here a little too late. And, you know, again, on the one hand, it emphasizes that Terra really has no idea what's going on. You and Terra are both just along for the ride on this whirlwind story. But at the same time, it does sort of ground all of these characters in just deep and meaningful histories that you're only getting a little bit of. Um, And I think it gives a reality to the world that wouldn't be there otherwise, even if it does sort of blow over you kind of since you're just trying to like take in what's going on at the same time, you, you get the sense that this is a place where people live and work and do things. Yeah. I mean, totally. The town has this great 
so we've seen one town, it's sort of the sad, right, mining mm -hmm. um, industrial town of Narsh. But this, this other town, Figaro, South Figaro, uh, is very bustling, very um, full of these characters, even the non-playable ones, right? That there's the rich man has got his sort of mansion and there's some secret passages there. Yep. Um, there's the old man who used to serve him. You can't really do much with that just yet, but they're sort of tantalizing because he's got a basement that seems to have some various passageways as well. Right. Um, and, and as you come into town, probably the first place you go, you're following this mysterious person uh, who turns out uh, at the bar, there's the, uh, the assassin, right? Um, Shadow and his right. dog. And he won't talk to you. He's the only character so far who just, who just won't respond when you try to talk to him. Yeah, he, um, he gives you the little dot, dot, dot if you try and talk to him. But if you talk to the dog, he's like, he'll bite you. It's so awesome. And he doesn't join your party right, right away. It's the same no. as the little thumbnail you get for Sabin, right? You, you hear about him before you ever meet him. Um, back at the castle Figaro before it um, changes into a submarine or whatever it does. Right. Um, but so, so he will join later, but he, uh, he's, sort of, he's sort of part of your group, but not, not, not entirely. You don't fully know when he's going to join and when he's going to leave. Um, yeah. And the fact that they do give him that little introduction shot, like the same little opening screen that you see for all the other characters, I mean, that would just pique your curiosity right away. You're like, yeah. how do I get this guy to join us? Yeah. Um, but even more than that, like when you in fact try to interact with him, you get this whole interaction between the other characters with like, yeah, he's this dangerous assassin. He would kill his mother for coin, um, right. which already makes him memorable and fascinating. Like even before you get a chance to use Shadow, he's already you know, making you think about him. He's already distinct and unusual in this world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and much, I mean, I think he's, he's a cool kind of counterpart to Sabin in that way. Cause Sabin also this sort of shadowy figure, you see that he's a playable character before he actually joins your party, mm -hmm. wondering what's going on with him, but he's very much this like pure of heart, you know, good natured sort of, uh, Maybe a, a little bit of a muscle head, as um, I think the octopus calls him. Um, but but he, like, he's he's a good person to have on your side in yeah. the fight against, um, you know, the parasite up there on the mountaintop. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's a it's a pretty dramatic scene where you know you see these um, these these flashes of wind and and energy come out and it blows away like everyone else. And he stands up to it, right? And then you have to, <laughs> you have to do a little bit of, um, of Street Fighter, uh, like button pushing, <laughs> right? Yeah. To get his 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 uh, technique to work. So it, it just throws this other kind of um, spin on things, uh, which is, I mean, it it keeps it keeps it fresh. That's what I think. Ultimately, I'd say about the this this kind of variety of the game. It just it it maintains novelty and and interest where otherwise you might get into kind of a rut yeah i mean i've always been interested in the the different battle mechanics that final fantasy has employed over the years um and they've gotten more and more sophisticated as time has gone on like the original final fantasy it, it wasn't much to speak of you just had a couple of set characters they each had their own specialties and that's what you did but um Six is such an interesting entry insofar as like each character has their one unique thing that they yeah. do. 
Um, and each of those things is completely different. Um, like there's, there's occasional overlap, but not very much. Um, and it, it's, I mean, the strategy of Final Fantasy VI, like the, the, the optimal way to play the game is finding which powers complement each other. How yeah. can you use, you know, Saban's Blitz with um, Edgar's tools? Or, you know, how do you pair Terra's magic ability with the other members of the, of the party? Um, picking and choosing who is going into the fight is probably the most important part of, you know, the fight itself. Um, and it does keep it fresh because there's always somebody else ready to join the party. Like the, again, the cast is huge. So the, the number of powers, the number of potential contributions that you're looking at is pretty dang impressive. Um, and it never gets old in that sense. Furthermore, the game keeps, you know, keeps preventing you from controlling who your party is. <laughs> like, I mean, we're, we're right at the river and this is where the party splits into three groups. And now you will only have Locke or you will only have Sabin or you will only have Terra and Edgar and Bannon. Um, you're, you, every time that you think that you've got it under control, that you've figured out how to go about battling, they throw a wrench in the works and something new happens or some new character joins up. And now you've got to figure it out all over again. This this point is really strange to me because you can you can choose to join right away as Terra, mm -hmm. and um and you're rewarded for doing so, um with a with a certain relic that you know is pretty cool, uh, I think it's the gauntlet that they give you yep. if you join right away, All right? But if you so if you say you won't join, mm -hmm. um, that's not really an option. Like you you're stuck in this setting. And you can go around and talk to everyone again. And then you'll have the option to, to answer his question a second time. Mm -hmm. And if you say no a second time, you will still end up being caught up by the circumstances of their, um, you know, their hideout being discovered, um, the empire being on its way, and, and you, have to, you have to escape. And you'll be rewarded more uh, if, you don't, if you don't choose to join but are are sort of forced to by providence or, or, or fate or whatever, mm -hmm. you end up getting something called the Genji glove. Oh, okay. Which is I... really powerful because it lets you hold two swords. Oh, okay. Attack yeah. twice. This is something that I would never have known about if I hadn't been reading my little my little guide. Mm -hmm. um, because I like you want to get all the all the loot. Right. Uh, if I can help it. But this one, I mean you you have to be sort of a um, perverse player of this game to to stumble upon this item, um, and it's named for it's a it's a it's a literary reference, right? Mm -hmm. um, even more so than like the the Don Wanning of Edgar or the Kefka Kafka thing. This right. one is is like uh, is a direct reference to the tale of Genji. It seems like I, yes. I don't know that story well enough to know why you'd have two swords because uh, <laughs> I thought it was a story about like writing very flowery um, poetry back and forth. Uh, it very much is, but um, <laughs> I, I think it was either this past year or last year I read the tale of Genji start to finish. Um, oh yeah. It, it was an ambitious undertaking. Um, and 
Does anyone wield two swords at any point? <laughs> not that I know of. Okay. Um, I do not remember Genji ever wielding two swords. No warrior action takes place in that book. <laughs> Basically, whatever. Um, but what I would note about the tale of Genji and the possible reference there is like Genji is throughout. On the one hand, he's very skillful. Like everybody loves Genji. He is incredibly popular because like he can write the most beautiful poetry he is incredibly handsome even in his later years he always gets the girl like he is don juan in his own right Um, but on the other hand he's always divided um like probably the critical characteristic of genji is that on the one hand he is this you know extremely popular extremely well-to-do uh, extremely beautiful courtly noble um, but he yearns throughout the book to retire and become a buddhist monk and oh. disappear from society um, now i'm not entirely sure if that's sort of the two swords that we're thinking of here the dual wielding um, i would note that like i think almost every final fantasy game has a reference to the tale of genji like the genji glove or genji armor or genji something like final fantasy tactics there's a whole there's a whole suit of genji armor which you can only get yeah. if you just steal it piece by piece from one <laughs> of the other characters which is an arduous task um, they tend to be very high level rewards and pretty well hidden um, but they are always very powerful. Uh, and usually when they're represented, like when you get a picture, they're usually in this deep purple color. Again, a sort of nobility reference. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So I'm not entirely sure what the illusion is specifically pointing to. And I mean, keep in mind, I'm, I read the tale of Genji alone. Like I did not do it in a group. I did not study the, the illusions or how it's interpreted. Um, so it could be that there's an entire sort of like interpretive uh, matrix surrounding it that I'm just not aware of. Maybe there's there's a significance to the two swords that I just missed uh, because I wasn't paying attention to the discourse around it. But um, yeah, as far as I can tell, like it's a reference to being skillful. It's a reference to being subtle. Um, wielding two swords requires incredible concentration and focus and that's something that genji is famous for oh yeah i, I mean it's I, I like that interpretation a lot like the way you say like he's a very much a, a on the one hand on the other hand kind of person mm-hmm. that that works um and this this kind of the the way that the myth of pandora is brought in explicitly there and then this other kind of very subtle reference is brought in Again, only if you sort of know about it or are being sort of uh, sneaky and, and cheeky and trying to get out of, you know, doing what's obviously the thing the game wants you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, both of these are ways that I think it, it gives you some kind of, um, another kind of variety to the, to the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not in terms of tone now, but in terms of, you know, what is it really about? What is the story really trying to get at? Yeah. And, and it does seem to be something like, you know, developing skill, developing strategy and, and versatility and seeing, you know, possible lives that you could lead. Right. Yeah. You know, Sabin is such a cool character in that way. Right. Like he he seems to have um, made a, a certain choice to go out and, um, you know, live in 
community with uh, people dedicated to a certain kind of art, right? Mm-hmm. But he too is drawn in um, yeah. by, by your need, by, by this kind of obvious uh, need for, um, for heroic <laughs> intervention. <laughs> One of the things that I, that I think about though, like the, the fact that they reward you more if you as Tara reject um, the returners call to you. I mean, on the, on the one hand, you talk about it like it's perverse. Like it, the game obviously wants you to say yes and get, get a move on. Um, but on the other hand, I think, I think rejecting it is honestly the most, the most Tara-like response. That's fair. Like if you role play as her, if you were thinking what's going on in her mind, turning down the returners makes tons of sense. Um, again, it's this whirlwind. And I mean, of all the people you've seen interacting with the returners, like Locke, Edgar, and Sabin really aren't at this point reliable enough for you to say, yeah, I'll throw in with them. Like they seem like decent people, sure. But you know, Edgar's a playboy and Locke is fairly disorganized. I mean, this whole thing has been just one mad dash across the desert, a mountain, a cave, like all <laughs> over the place. There's no reason to think that these guys have any chance against the Empire. And there's no reason for Tara to think that, you know, she she should throw her lot in with them. Um, being alone makes the most sense to Tara. It, it would protect her better in some ways. Um, and I think, you know... I think the rejection, I think resisting that temptation is also recognized as being honorable by the game. Um, like while the, the course of events is, you know, dire and dramatic and powerful, um, you know, Sabin, Sabin is right to walk away from his horrific dramatic circumstances, although ultimately he has to be drawn back in when other actors start acting badly. Um, and you know, we'll see later with Cyan, a very similar inclination. Um, so, you know, a lot of these characters have a lot of, a lot of things pulling them away from this quest, um, personal problems, personal, uh, personal issues that they need to deal with. I mean, arguably everyone in the party has left something behind in order to join up and go on this heroic quest. Um, if you as Tara say, you know what, no, then presumably Locke gets to go back to his loved one and Edgar goes back to Figaro and protects it from the Empire and Sabin goes back to his, you know, monastic training and and those are all worthy pursuits. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how the other characters, you know, what they are leaving, uh, what they what they lose in joining up and becoming, you know, a part of this journey. Definitely. Yeah. Because I think the, the character of Bannon is a really odd one. Um, Cause as a leader, he doesn't inspire terribly great confidence. You know, he's kind of holed up with this very small group of, of, you know, rebels um, doesn't seem to have a great strategy in mind really. And everything sort of hangs on this, um, this return of magic, right? Which the empire has actually engineered and kind of pushed them to the brink of. And so if they, if they grab onto that last hope, they're really no better than the empire, you know, ethically, Mm -hmm. if in, unless insofar as they allow it to be this voluntary choice of Terra. But now the, again, the game doesn't let you actually 
have an option there. There is no game if you don't choose to go along. Like you don't get to see what that would look like. You you can only kind of imagine it. Um, And yeah, no, no doubt they've they've got a remake in the works where you can go off and be separate (laughs) and see each of those those possible lives actually play out um, to their to their end. But you know, so there's something really interesting there about. I I know you're you're keen on kind of ethical questions mm-hmm. as they relate to art and and representations of reality and, and and media and everything. So I mean, Tara, yeah, as far as she is like really being herself, she is um, not so willing to join in this quixotic um, rebellion. On the other hand, you know, by by being herself, by saying no to it she is swept along, you know, as, as events ten, tend to do in this game, she's swept along all the same. And um, sure enough, uh, you come out, you know, more, more skillful, more able to handle uh, what's, what's thrown at you as a result. Um, and, you know, she doesn't necessarily use the glove herself. Maybe you give it to one of the, the other characters who would, who would benefit more. I'm looking at you, right. Locke. Right, yep. <laughs> we time. steal attack, <laughs> but um, you know, but still, it's 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 definitely conducive to like, you know, uh, standing up and and fighting back and um and asserting the uh, the freedom of of your team against against this this kind of um, evil, you know, but. Again, the empire, as for all its evil, has led to the revival of magic. You know, like yeah. that's that's kind of odd. <laughs> Don't know yeah. what to do with that. Um, some of that, I mean, I'm kind of struck by by like the way magic works. Just at this point in the game, like, it, in, it's not pure magic; it's magi tech. Yes, that, that the empire seems to wield. They have those Magitech suits, and the plan of the Returners is that they're going to steal a bunch of the Magitech suits, and then they're going to be able to use them against the empire. Which does sound exactly like you know why what makes you better than them? Then, mm-hmm. like if your your plan is to just do their plan but better, um, so you know that does not inspire a whole lot of confidence. But it's also significant that you know Magitech is almost a perversion of what we're seeing Tara herself able to do like pure magic as it exists, you know, it's, it seems, it seems natural, organic. Like she's harnessing the elements, fire and earth and, you know, she heals. But when we saw her in the Magitek armor, it's pure destruction. It's like machine guns and, and missiles that are launched out of the, out of the, you know, uh, out of the suit and like bioweapons and all sorts of things. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it definitely invokes this sort of industrial age, World War One kind of, you know, developments in warfare. Um, it is, it's like a bastardization of a pure science, I suppose. And and I'm, you know, the aesthetic is not subtle about that. Like every castle that you go to, even the one in Figaro, it has smokestacks and and flywheels and all of the, the, you know, industrial age trappings. It is very uh, steampunk in its own right. Um, Narsh, like even when you see it from a distance, it emphasizes that like all the smokestacks from the mines, um, 
So, you know, this is, this is an industrialized, technologically driven society, and the techno technology rests on the back of this Magitech. Um, like, all of these economies, all of these forces are sort of focused at whatever it is that Kefka is doing with his experiments that are, you know, coming out into the empire and, and fueling its war machine, both figuratively and literally. Um, and that's contrasted with whatever the espers are doing. Yeah. Like if the espers are the source of magic, then it's that which the empire seeks as a sort of power they can't control or, you know, or they're trying to harness and potentially failing or running into great danger by doing so. Um, but Terra, Terra speaks to the espers. These espers are more than just a resource. Yeah. Yeah. She, her, her little um, dialogue, so to speak with the Esper is, is probably the most mysterious point so far in the game of all these sort of tantalizing mysteries. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, we will see, I guess, what, what will come of that because so she, the, the three groups right now, just to sort of set the scene here, mm -hmm. um, she and Bannon and Edgar, are headed, wait, and, and Sabin is with them at first, right? On the raft, yes. they're headed up to Narsh to right. make contact with the Esper, see what they can uh, learn from it. And meanwhile, Locke is supposed to be uh, infiltrating behind enemy lines back in South Figaro again. Um, and so you don't get to play as him right away. First you're on the raft. And then, and then right. for some reason, Sabin jumps in the water after the octopus to, to try to finish it off, I guess. And um, like so there's like a sort of Beowulf moment there, right? The, yeah. um, the underwater wrestling match between the, the you know, the, the bear-like warrior against the, the sea monster. And he gets, he gets whomped. He gets like flung uh, across the continent <laughs> yeah. by, by uh, one of those tentacle slaps that takes out Bannon in one hit. Um, and so he goes off to have his own kind of adventure. Um, Again, sort of in a silly way, but you know, it turns out to have a pretty providential outcome because you you end up with a bunch of you know new information and, and a couple new party members and yep. it's all good. But uh, but so you get to sort of then um, as the Mog character, the little the little Moogle teddy bear guy, you right. get to choose what order you want to do these events in, um, and you know some are are much more quickly dealt with than others um mm. and uh, but but that's kind of cool like from where you know at one point it looks like you don't really have a choice and and to an extent you still don't like you're going to end up doing all of these and it really doesn't matter what order you do them but mm. but um you do have a real choice like about what to do next at least um and and it adds to this kind of again variety um scenery uh shifting and tone shifting and um and there's just something there's something that's at once silly in that you get to play as mog right to choose mm -hmm. and against this like black backdrop um it, it's also kind of weirdly haunting you know it's like that's what's behind everything in this game there's this kind of like well of of mystery mm -hmm. like um within which you know all of the all of the coding all the events all the role playing um takes place and, and it's like so what is really back there right like yeah 
we got to find out more about Mog clearly because he's somehow got the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me like. I think it's been a long time since I've played it, but in Chrono Trigger, you get access to that sort of realm behind time um, where you can then go from place to place. Um, And and they do something similar in Chrono Cross, as I recall, like there's sort of like the two worlds, but then there's like the way station that you can hang out while you choose where to go. Um, And a lot of the Final Fantasy games do kind of tap into that. Uh, at at some point and six I think is like I'm not even sure if it's intentional like they just need some way for you to be able to choose where you're going like I don't think you revisit the dark place Um, (laughs) but it does it does sort of set up this interesting idea that you know like fate itself is in your hands Um, the the role of the player in this game is a cryptic one Uh, like you you do control the destinies of all these characters and there is some sort of, you know, place behind the place where you, where, where the transition is made, where the medium occurs. Um, like there's the game world and there's your world and every now and again, the game will step back and give you this sort of, you know, like an operating system by which mm-hmm. you get to, to address um, the world where the, the characters will interact. I like that idea a lot because it, I mean, I don't know a lot about coding, but mm-hmm. I, I have this image of probably from the matrix, right? Of like a black backdrop against which these bright, you know, lines of text and, and ones and zeros, you know, right, are yeah. sort of cascading. And it's like that, you know, that you have this kind of backdrop, whether it's the text box or the, or that inky blackness of, you know, choosing what character to do next. And it's got that, that blue sparkly save point there too. Mm-hmm. Cause of course the other option is to save and just stop playing for a while, <laughs> which you got to do once in a while. Yep. Um, and, and so that, that's again, sort of that nexus between the worlds of, of the game of you as the player and, and something sort of in between where, where decision-making happens, where, consequences will unfold um such as they are right within the story um and you know i i have certainly got you know preferences about these different episodes um mm-hmm. i think the phantom train portion of this game is just oh yeah it's way very cool <laughs> it's a way cool part and like it it sort of pops out of nowhere though like you wouldn't know which of these three characters was going to lead you to that but um but that's part of the fun of it, right? Like, again, you, you sort of are, you're swept along, you make decisions and yet aren't really held responsible for them mm-hmm. all that much, you know, except insofar as you want to think about to what extent you might be, you know, changing things and, and, and doing something to these characters. Um, you're just sort of continually delighted by new stuff and um, have new kind of problems and terrors thrown at you uh, mm-hmm. from from the depths or from uh, from out of left field, basically. Um, I also really like Locke's little adventure in this part of the game. It's, it's really fun to sort of do the sneaking, uh, puzzle-solving type of stuff that you get to do in Figaro. Mm-hmm. So, so what part of the game are you most looking forward to of the, of the three options that are, that are ahead of us here? 
Um, I don't know. Again, Locke and Locke and the Phantom Train are, are really good examples. I do really like Cyan's story start to finish, so okay. I'm eager to meet up with him. But I'm also I'm also eager to see Locke introduced to Sellers, um, <laughs> because that's also a really powerful point in the game. Um, it's kind of a bummer that apparently neither of us are psyched about the Narsh portion. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's okay. We've been there. We've done that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it just seems to drive home to me how much the characters drive this story. Yeah. Like, I, I cannot, for the life of me, tell you what's going to pan out with the Espers. I, I remember, you know, little fleeting glimpses from earlier playthroughs of how the whole plot works out between Terra and the Espers. And I remember, you know, certain, certain things we'll encounter in the future, but, you know, I remember clear as day, the Phantom Train sequence yeah. and Sion's disappointment. And I, I remember, you know, Locke and Sella's very, very well. Um, like I could tell you every single character's motivation in this game, but I couldn't tell you what it all adds up to in the end. <laughs> um, but I think again, like we, like I said last week, if teamwork is one of the central themes, it makes sense that it would be the characters that drive it. Um, and, you know, this is such an interesting, it's such an interesting portion of the game insofar as up until this point, it has always been, you know, one team. You getting a few more members to add to the one team. Um, you're getting that up to that fourth person and then you're like yes i have a full party and then they immediately like break it <laughs> and now they scatter these characters to the four winds and it's kind of got this oh no like the team is falling apart you know the breaking of the fellowship sort of situation absolutely yeah but then you know it doesn't take long before all of these characters are making new team members it's almost like the team gets bigger when you split up um like it gets it gets bigger faster each tiny snowball ends up snowballing into a larger boulder in its own right um you know it's like the the christian church planting or the anarchist cell approach you know you just branch out and get as many smaller groups as you possibly can so you ultimately have this like really impressive force that yeah that is a really um a curious sort of institution building and uh makes me respect bannon a lot more all of a sudden he's like <laughs> yeah he clearly had this he orchestrated ultros's attack so that <laughs> it would split your party up. yeah and bannon's an interesting character too like he he's not an official party member you don't get to get to keep him so to speak um but it, you know i'm struck because like I said, his, his power, his unique power is he does healing. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's and just it's health. It just heals you all the way. <laughs> yeah, he heals every member of the party all the way up to full in one go, um, which, you know, is just invaluable. Like, yeah. dang, yeah. why can't we keep him around forever? But at the same time, you know, he has really low health. He gets one-shotted by Ultros. Um, and it, I mean... I can't help but think that this is like the perfect pair, the perfect analog for the charismatic rebel leader. Like, <laughs> and even when you see his picture, like in the menu, if you press start yeah, yeah. during that whole thing, he's got like this grizzled bear, like hair. that's just very disheveled. And he, he seems, he seems like he doesn't know at all what he's doing 
like he seems so caught by the seat of his pants but it seems like he's just so freaking charismatic so personable so so like convincing that people just join him like you can't you can't not do what he says and you know again like he heals everybody he can inspire the entire team to great deeds but you take him out and you're done <laughs> yeah game over right and that's what yeah, yeah. that's what ultra says right game over kids right <laughs> uh it's it's pretty likely that it will happen at least once and yeah what bandon makes me think of is that character in um in the magic mountain towards the end of that book there's this um this life affirming character who like comes to the the infirmary um i think his name is like pfeffercorn or something like that and he just he has this kind of yeah this energy about him this elan vital uh, that just um, sweeps through, um, but you know you can't really pin down what it is he's he's all about. It, it's a it's a lot of kind of rhetoric. It's a lot of um, uh, yeah, flying flying around from one thing to the other. Um, maybe not so much substance, or maybe it's a certain it's a certain kind of you know uh, ineffable substance that you you just can't keep because it would. Well, it would break the game, right? Like you, yeah. you don't get to just heal your party all the way every turn. Like that—that's just not fair. <laughs> yep. That's not fun anymore. Um, it's fun for a little while, but yeah, you gotta. It, it's great to try, but you—you <laughs> you can't have that as like one of the primary engines of the game. Yeah. Um, well, all right. Well, so I, I think that—that's about all that I had in in mind to talk about this time. Was there other stuff that you wanted to? circle back around to or pick up no, that covers most of it i feel like a lot of the stuff that that you know is sort of hinted at or brought up we should we should cover more when we get deeper in um okay. like there's a lot of these themes that will get fleshed out way more later all right so we'll try to do another hour or so gameplay wise i don't know that that will quite get us through probably get us around the, the train let's let's try to get to the train for next time yeah, well, I'll that. definitely plan to do um, Sabin's Sabin's quest line. My goal is to get all three of them, you know, knocked out and get the party reunited before I call it. But uh, right on. I don't know if we've got the time, uh, so we'll see. There, but I'll yeah. definitely try for the Phantom Train and getting Cyan aboard. Awesome. Okay, let's make that the goal for next time. All righty. Thanks again. Have a good night. You too.